All right, welcome on into the show. My name is Denny Galgo, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur. And he's back. He's better than ever. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up, dude? Chilling. I was trying to make an NBA reference there, but yeah, you know. Oh, I see. I see. You should give me a bubble reference or something. Oh, a bubble? What, you're the bubble boy? I just heard a really loud noise outside, like a sustained kind of jet engine for like a while, which makes me think. I've never asked you this question. This very important question. We host a show together. Yeah. Where Where do you land on aliens? Where do I land do on aliens? Oh. Aliens? Do, do you think they're around? Do you think they're trying to talk to us? Do you think we are them? Well, where, where we never discussed this before. It's I mean, a big deal, you know. The government came out a few weeks ago, and nobody cared about it, and said that UFOs are real. Crazy, so, right? That leads me to believe, you know, anything's possible. It's super narcissistic to think that we're the only, like, quote-unquote, intelligent life forms, like, in the galaxy. So, of course, I'm going to sure. believe it in, in aliens. I mean, because, you know why, Benny? Because science. What is that? <laughs> you, know, you know why I believe in it? I believe in it because every president seems to age about eight years in the first three months. Yeah. Which just always makes me think. That they they're learning stuff that that I don't want to know, and I think some of it might have to do with aliens. I'll even go a step further. The longer and longer I take part in the experience of the human race, the more and more I'm apt to believe that like maybe we're not even from here. You know, <laughs> I think we may be the wow. aliens, Danny. What do you think? Uh, honestly we may, you know we don't seem to we don't seem to gel well with this place that we hang out at you, you know? had me at before you know i don't even think we're from here which got pretty like go back to where you came from pretty fast but no benny i think you know it may not be in this galaxy but to think that you know there isn't a better thing out there would quite frankly be negative and i want to believe that there's people that look at us and be like those peasants yeah. Oh no. And not more just than that, I think rich like people. I think someone's playing some version of like you know Xbox thousand two hundred eighty, and we're just like Sims, basically. You know, <laughs> like someone's just playing around right now, and and at some point they're gonna be like, eh, eh, I'm bored of this game, and they're just gonna delete it. I actually used to have that problem. I I really like those Sim games like Farmville Me and too. things like that, and. Uh, I was really sick of playing that game, but I couldn't delete it off my phone because in my head, I was like, all these animals are going to die. <laughs> you know? I was like, I feel super bad. I don't want to kill this, this village I've taken so much time to create. It felt too real. <laughs> so I don't know, man. Maybe my instinct means something. I think that that may be the most coherent point you've made the entire time we've been doing this podcast. That Farmville <laughs> is somehow tied to UFOs and aliens. I love it. We uh, are Farmville. That's <laughs> it. This is George Orwell going on. Uh, well, George Orwell was never in, in a rock band, but Benny Horowitz is and was. Let's get into this day music history. a big day so the clash is a very important band to me for a lot of different of reasons and this day in 1984 was when mick jones lead guitarist and primary songwriter for the clash was fired by joe strummer and paul simino i knew that they had kind of a messy ending to the clash but i didn't realize kind of how convoluted it became so you know 
they had one of those great runs. We've talked about this a lot on this show, how every band has that great run, you know, almost like a, a team who can manage to three-peat is like a band who manages to put out five awesome records in a row. And The Clash did it <clears throat> between 77 and 82. They nailed it. They had the, the cohesive lineup, Topper Heaton on drums. But then in 82 is when it kind of started to crumble. Topper Heaton was doing too many drugs. The Clash had sort of a like, we don't care who drums policy. I've read in a couple uh, articles which I think is a mistake, especially because of how good and clever Topper Heaton was. I think he's actually a little undervalued in what he probably brought to those records. Uh, so they brought back their original drummer, Terry Chimes, who ended up quitting after three months because of how bad it had become between Joe Strummer and Mick Jones. Now, apparently Mick Jones had become very inconsistent, late to practices, uh, you couldn't rely on him anymore. And a bit, you know, rock starry. And then, as a lot of people in the early '80s got caught up, he was obsessed with hip hop and synthesizer music, and pretty much was abandoning guitar rock and mm. trying to bring his career into more of a synth, electric, you know, oingo boingo kind of thing. And at the same time, Joe Strummer was looking for sort of a return to the roots of the clash and a little faster. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, headbutting in that time. And then to his discredit, I guess, Joe Strummer had also had uh, apparently changed in the face of the kind of success he had where, you know, not only um, being the singer in a very famous band, but also at that time, becoming sort of a iconic political icon who was, in a lot of ways, uh, their music and what he was saying was leading and spearheading movements. And you had Bob Dylan backstage crying at his shows. And, you know, like this really, you know, and I think he was coming to terms with exactly who he was. And once they started firing people and bringing different people in, him and the manager, Bernie Rhodes, were running this thing like a, a ship of like military recruits where they were super hardcore to the newer guys and a little godlike. And this is when he kind of started his military obsession and all that. Hmm. And then in, in a, in a part of this, I didn't realize, so I didn't know it had a name, right. But in the punk rock culture, there was a thing where if you really liked the band, you yeah. started spinning on them. Luckily this was done by the time I had gotten into music, but I'd seen, you know, I'd read, um, you know, Henry Rollins books and seen some stuff. I've basically heard it most from the Black Flag camp, but apparently this was a big deal in the catch. So it has a name in Britain, which is called gobbing, <laughs> which is the charming punk custom of honoring your favorite band by spitting on them. Apparently Strummer had contracted hepatitis in 1978 from a well-aimed gob. Oh, and then his father died and he had no intention of, of humoring this ritual anymore. And after uh, facing a nightly rain of phlegm, he finally snapped towards the tour's end. He singled out a, a gobber and threatened to kill him on stage um, and started really like, you know, getting a little more acrimonious with the fans and all that. So I had no idea about this part of it. So apparently gobbing came back and Joe Strummer was not, happy about oh being God. gobbed on at that point. Uh, Dude. So. 
Like crazy, what the, right? Like what the heck would you do if you got spit on? Oh my gosh, I can't imagine. I mean, yeah, it's like, well, I mean, these days, yeah. it's, it's, it's like attempted murder, you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how well I would have dealt with it either. I mean, if I had known that it was like a thing, like, oh, this guy spit on me because he thinks I'm awesome. I don't know. Maybe I would have been a disgusting enough punk to like enjoy it or something, but I can't see in any capacity in my life where I'd enjoy being gobbed on. Are we sure um, R. Kelly was never a punk rocker in his life? I, Hey, <laughs> listen, we've talked about this a lot. Punk is not all Liberty spikes. There's a lot of punks hiding in plain sight, you know, doing all sorts of shit. So then this gobbing thing happened. And then Joe Strummer's mother got sick. He was detached from the band for about six months. And the manager, Bernie Rhodes, who was part of the band from the ground up and Joe Strummer had a lot of trust in and kind of uh, gave him a lot of credit for turning him into what he was and the clash or what he was. But he functionally owned the band at that point. And he took over production and writing duties for that last record called Cut the Crap, which sucks. Mm. Everybody knows it sucks. Yeah. It's like the last clash record that you don't pay attention to. <laughs> Um, and, and it kind of destroyed the clash. And at the same time, Mick Jones had started big audio dynamite, which was much better than that last clash record. And it kind of all fizzled out from there. Yeah. All the new members talked about some, some solid touring and some good stuff that happened between like 85 and 86, but this was the end of the clash. And on this day in 84, Mark, the beginning of the end of the clash when they took out, uh, when they took out Mick Jones. The only good part about this story is Joe Strummer's redemption story in the early 90s when he started Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros for a badass group and he put out some good records again and seemed to find his musical peaks. Wow. So that was my this day, very important one to me, The Clash. I, I, I had known some of what this story was, but I didn't realize the lurid details, especially the gobbing. The gobbing, that goodness was, gracious. Yeah. Again, I knew about this habit. But I didn't know it was like such a ritual custom, you know, at that oh, time. Man. Like instead of clapping, it was like, all right, you're great. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine it. It's nothing worse. Oh. I'd rather be punched in the face. Than exactly. The gobbing. I'm sure there was a lot of tobacco and other stuff happening. Oh, that's disgusting. Oh, God oh, knows. You're in like, you're in England. There's warm beer. Probably brush your teeth in days. I don't know. No good. No good. Oh, man. All right, Benny. Well, mine is on this day in 1984. You know, this woman had been at music for almost 25 years. And on this day in 1984, Tina Turner had her first solo number one hit in the U.S. with What's Love Got to Do, Got to Do With It. Got to Do With It. Love it. Did you know this song, originally written for Cliff Richard, he rejected it. Then went on to Donna Summer, and she sat with it for a while, never recorded it, before Tina Turner turned it into a number one hit. So on this day, 1984, shout out to Tina Turner. Oh, the best. The best arms in the business, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember when that movie came out, and everyone was like, Angela Bassett's too buff. <laughs> Get the fuck yeah, out of like, here. Like... Tina Turner, was... you ever seen those legs? Oh. Woo. <laughs> My goodness. Hey, Benny, there's a brand new band I've been listening to. They just crossed my radar, and they're called Guardrail. They're Chicago's finest, and they're gearing up to release their new EP, Yikes, on September 25th on Open Your Ears Records. 
They've got a little bit of everything. They've got catchy melodies and witty hooks. Guardrail brings their own style of diet punk to your stereo. You know, they're not quite bad religion, but they're not some 41 either. Here's a clip of their new single, Till We're Dead. I've been listening to that one driving up and down the parkway this summer, going back and forth to the beach. If you like what you heard, you can head on over to oyerex.com. That's O-Y-E-R-E-C-S dot com to pre-order your copy of this album today. Guardrail, yikes, September 25th. Write that down on your calendars, ladies and gentlemen, courtesy of the good folks at Open Your Ears Records. Pre-order today. All right, Benny, first topic today. Well, it's really been the topic for the past week. Protests across the social landscape, but nobody was at the front of this more than the NBA when my Milwaukee Bucks took a stand in their Game 5 game against the Orlando Magic 20 minutes before tip-off. George Hill, Sterling Brown really gathered the guys together and were like, we're not going to play this game. The events of uh, Jacob Blake Jr. in Kenosha, Wisconsin... 40 miles south of Milwaukee, dominated the headlines for the whole week. Benny, what a week this was. It showed the best of a state that I love, that I spent four years in Wisconsin, but it also showed the very worst at the same time. Um, Sure. I just kind of want to, before we get into the minutia of this, where do you think we go from here? Obviously, in the past week, you know, all of these NBA teams have come out and been like, hey, we're opening our arenas for polling places on election day which is great some nfl teams have started to do that as well during that day where they boycotted the game uh, they got on the phone with the attorney general of wisconsin the lieutenant governor uh the blake family so the nba is stepping up in a big way but how do we get tangible change out of this and i guess where do we go from here it's been a good start but i don't think it's enough yeah well i think what we ran into something is something i'm actually really interested in in general which is the idea that the powers that be want people to put a patch on their shirt, put something on the court and continue to fulfill their TV contracts and continue to keep the NBA rolling as they always do. So it's essentially the same exact thing, the tiny bit of a different message, which, you know, even someone like, you know, the first couple of days when I saw this on the court, I'm like, that's a powerful statement. After watching the bubble for a round, I barely noticed the fact that Black Lives Matter is on the court. So I do think that um, they ran into this issue of what I said before. It's the idea that they'll teach you Martin Luther King in school, but they won't teach you Malcolm X. They'll teach you Mahatma Gandhi in school, but they won't teach you about the violent Indian revolution against the British. And there's a lot of people who talk about the fact that this is done intentionally. It's put in curriculums intentionally because of pacified people who are peacefully protesting doesn't really do all that much. And if it's not mixed with something else, then maybe that movement doesn't go forward. So that being said, I think they ran into that problem mixed with what I talked about last week, which is tour brain. The fact that these guys have been in the bubble for a month now, away from their families, hyper connected to social media and the news and seeing things, you know, almost more than they've ever seen it before. 
And there had to be some fallout. Like we knew this was coming. So from what I can understand, this players meeting got tense due to Milwaukee's lack of communication to the point that the Magic took the floor to start the game, right? Yeah. So obviously they didn't tell him. To me, I like it because that's the shakeup that I'm talking about. That's the unexpected, oh shit kind of thing where out of nowhere, all these people are seeing a disruption in their flow, in their money. And even for someone like me, I was about to gear up to watch games that night. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm on the right side of Black Lives Matter. I believe in it and I believe in the movement. But even me, I felt this disappointment. I was like, oh, shit, I wanted to watch basketball tonight. And I think my feeling was the reason it is an effective means of protest. They took something away that people wanted, and they took money away from people they needed to take that away from. So I actually had no problem with the fact that it was spontaneous. And I like the idea that instead of just being like, yeah, fuck you, we did it. Within 24 hours, like you said, they're on the phones with the right people. The NBA is connecting with the right people and you're seeing action in the fact that all 30 arenas are going to turn into voting polling locations afterwards. So something did come out of it. And I think in the end, it seems to be a unifying thing for the NBA and the players and their activism movement. And I could see it being even more powerful moving forward as a result. The one thing I know about this is this is not the end of these players being vocal during this bubble. And this bubble is going to October and the election is in November. Uh, The very interesting thing over the weekend on the radio, we had uh, Zora Stevenson. She's uh, the Bucks courtside reporter. So she's on TV on Fox Sports Wisconsin, travels with the team, is with the guys all the time. The interesting Mm -hmm. thing that she said was that these guys didn't really quite like they knew that they had power, but they didn't quite understand the enormity of how much they can affect people that can actually get stuff done in that sense. It really enacts change. Yeah, I agree. But, and I think uh, it's it's going to be really exciting. I mean, not exciting because the, the context is so depressing, right. but um, I guess it's just nice to see uh, a unified league and unified players and, And even when they have a problem, the people on top seem to connect so well that they can figure it out. Like within a short amount of time, it seems like David Silver can get to Chris Paul, can get to LeBron James, can get to Michael Jordan. And and things sort of actually move in that league and you don't have these stalemates that you find in other leagues. I think it's a unique time in that league where you have the best player in the league being so vocal, maybe more vocal than any athlete ever, you know, at this point. And connecting with a guy like Chris Paul, who's one of his closest friends, who's heading, you know, basically the head players rep with another player, former player, who's the only black owner in the league, you know, and David Silver, who seems to be as open as any commissioner in the past has been. So it does seem to be this unique blend of elements right now that make you know substantial change happen here's the thing with this okay everything that happened is great but if you have all of these guys together especially in one bubble you need a unified message when it happens and lebron was pissed about this in the meeting the clippers were pissed about this because you have a whole bunch of teams in there that are like all right we're gonna be in here till october right so I think spontaneity is good. Spontaneity gets headlines. It grabs the attention for a second. 
But in order for this to do what it needs to do, there needs to be way more unity than we saw last week. I that's where it's just like that. That's where I disagree this time, mm. because I, I, of course, I believe in a unified message. But I think if like at six fifteen that day, the Bucks started getting on the phone and started calling around and trying to find some way to unify this message and get all 13 teams still in the bubble to, to get on the same page and all do the same thing. Does anything happen? Does it happen as quickly? Does it happen as effectively? Like this is kind of what I started this point with, which is like, this is the equivalent to to street violence for the NBA. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, all right, we're fucking sick of it. And I love the fact that a guy like George Hill seems to be the, you know, you have some interesting things going on on that team. You know, yeah. your your best player and leader is a foreign born player. Uh, the one who seems to be the most vocal about the protest movement is George Hill, who owns like a thousand acre ranch like down in San Antonio and owns all these like that guy's American as fuck. Yeah. And then Sterling Brown, who was the victim of police violence just a couple years ago and won that case in an obvious case of uh, police brutality yeah. towards him. So Milwaukee ha- and, and then being so close to Kenosha, I, I think the people on that team were about to take the court and about to use their platform like LeBron James would have told them to yeah. do. And they were like, nah, fuck this. We can't. I feel yeah. too guilty. I can't do this right now. And honestly, I respect it. And I think uh, the spontaneity of it is what made it so effective in the long run. And if any team was going to kick this off, it had to be the Bucks because for every time you hear about like Sterling Brown making national news, right? You don't hear about a guy like former Bucks center John Henson who would go into a jewelry store in Whitefish Bay and the owner of that store would call the cops on him. There is a deep problem in Wisconsin that goes back 100, 200 years. So to see that the Bucks are stepping up. And the other thing, there was a lot of talk when Herb Cole sold the Bucks that they were going to move. They didn't have owners that were invested in the community. This was as big mm. a day for Lassery, Edens, Diamond, as they could have hoped. Yeah. It's one yeah. thing to put your money in. It is a whole other thing to call up the phone, call up people like Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, people that you helped get elected and be like, hey, now you you owe me one. Well, that was all the serious talk we have for today. Let's get to our dollar slice take. Benny, what's on your mind? So this is a quick one because it's silly. But I don't know if you know this. So some drummers, right, you know, you have a few options if you want to hear yourself on stage. You either put these giant speakers behind you and blast it behind you, which is bad for your ears. You got to do this. You can use inner ear monitors, but some drummers use a thing called the thumper, which is literally a buzzer that buzzes your butt when you hit the kick drum. So you actually feel the kick drum and that's how you're able to feel it. Okay. Now I was thinking they, sh- they should order a portable buzzer for like kids in school and stuff for when your butt is falling asleep. Just like a little pad that you can sit under here and if you need a little jolt while you're in class, give a little buzz, a little butt buzz to get you going. So I'm I'm talking about taking the drum thumper and giving it to the people, giving it to pedestrians. 
Benny, I got to know what this feels like. Does it feel, I mean, like, like I got family that listen to this podcast, but I just need to know uh, from your technical perspective, how does it feel? Well, this is the idea is this, right? So yeah. on a really big stage, you would have subs, you know, like bass speakers built into the stage, right? Like literally into the stage. So on these giant uh, rooms, you could have like a kick that literally like reverberates. Mm. So the idea is that you're sitting on top of a sub. It would be like if you were, you know, blasting uh, 90s hip hop out of the back of a shitty Civic with one of those giant thumping speakers in the trunk. You know, those kids who get a giant speaker but don't bother getting yeah. mids and highs. Yeah. Uh, and then their car just shakes down the road. It'd be like sitting on the, the like, the hood of that car yeah well there you have it ladies and gentlemen you want to get butt thumped i want to get butt yeah. thumped that's gonna be the name of this episode all right benny my dollar slice take for the week i feel like i've had a little bit too many business ideas but i think this one's actually super fun all right i think you know i think we need to modernize and make an easy bake oven for adults but an easy bake oven for, you know, like CBD and weed products. I feel like it would cure people. It would help, you know, you take these little things in the oven. It could be fun. You know, maybe you'd be concerned about kids getting in there. But I think easy bake oven for weed products would be a lot of fun. <laughs> easy bake oven for weed products. Yeah, yeah I kind of love that, man. That's a $20 <laughs> slice right there. You won't get that anywhere else. I definitely had some easy bake oven moments in my life. And I never got to do it with weed. So, yeah, this is great. This is great. <laughs> For the kids. All right, Benny, second half of the podcast. You know, before we talked about all the off-court stuff going on in the NBA, now let's move on to the court. And Benny, the second round of the NBA playoffs are going on, if you will, the conference semifinals, if you want to get all highfalutin on us. <laughs> sure. And it's time sure. to make some picks. All right. Yes. So let's start in the Eastern Conference. It's tipping off right now, the start of it. Milwaukee, Miami, who you got? You know, I'm seeing it's the sexy pick around right now. I know Miami had a great series against Indiana, but... I think people are kind of undervaluing the fact that Indiana basically had no Sabonis or Oladipo on, on two legs anyway for the whole series. I think it was a well-overmatched team, a bad matchup for them to begin with. Miles Turner is on the decline while Bam's on the incline. And, and I just think people got a little nuts about Miami jumping on the bandwagon. And I, and I do see Milwaukee with everything in play, with how deep they are, kicking the ball around the perimeter, the way they play defense. I think Miami might have a hard time scoring at times. And uh, I'm, I'm sticking with Milwaukee here. I'm so I'm conflicted maybe, here. Maybe six games. Right. Oh, And the Heat faithful over the weekend after they found out that they were playing the Bucks had Heat and Six trending, which is a little homage to the old Brandon Jennings Bucks and Six thing, which wow. I've gotten. If you go back through the, the, the Twitter history for me, that's probably been my most often tweet. Jennings. Hashtag Bucks and Six. <laughs> But, Benny, I'm really conflicted here because let's make this personal and then let's make it objective for two seconds. I got to root against my guy Jimmy Butler and Jay Crowder, two Marquette guys. I mean, I, I, I have to root against that in, in, in terms of my uh, favorite team. But then, you know, I kind of get half back when I get Wes Matthews, the guy that kind of started this whole generation of Marquette guys in the league. That aside, I'm more worried about this than you are. And I'm a Bucks fan over here because I think there's a lot of ways that the heat can hurt you especially you know the bucks kryptonite is if you start beating them from the perimeter that's a tough game for them to play 
Duncan Robinson's been a guy in this bubble that you you cannot yeah. leave him open. He's got a draining. He's been player. shooting ridiculously. Right, exactly. Tyler Hero's really stepped up. Combine that with, you know, Bam Adebayo is probably the least scared player on Giannis in the entire league. Sure. They, they create a yeah. lot of challenges. But the thing that keeps me sticking with the Bucks more often than not in this league, the team with the best player advances. I'd say it's probably about 90%. Mm. And Giannis, reigning yeah. MVP, keeping me going with the Bucks. And I think as the series wears on and people get more and more tired, I think that favors the Bucks. But man... For, for the job, I've had to watch all these Spo press conferences. He is in that nobody's giving us a chance mode. He is, He's probably been riding these guys harder than any coach in the league for a team that's been, been playing so well. That and the thing that scares me, especially in this series, Mike Budenholzer does not make adjustments. People within the organization have claimed for this series that, oh, like the Bucks have their adjustments in place. They're just waiting. Let's see. For right now, I got to side with Giannis, but I'm not comfortable about it. Ooh. It is shaking. <laughs> the deer is shaking. It is very much shaking. All right, Benny. Then there's the other half of this of the Eastern Conference. You know, Boston, Toronto. Who you like? I'm sticking with my pick. Okay, I yeah. know. You know, you could have the game one fever. Toronto obviously came out flat. Boston came out sharp. They had a different game plan. I liked it, but. I think they came out firing on all cylinders and I think that Toronto came out particularly flat and unready for some reason, which is not really their style. Mm -mm. Um, and I still think that the front court of Boston is going to uh, give them a lot of problems. Um, I think once you figure out a way to slow the game down a little bit, and you can really focus more on the inside with Siakam getting to the rim and Abaka and protecting the rim. And you essentially take away offensively any front court offense from Boston in general. Uh, I like the way Daniel Tice is playing when he pulls out, but I could see him getting in a lot of foul trouble with the guys they have in the court. Actually, I can see him fighting Serge Ibaka at some point in this series. That's Another side bet if you want to make one. I'm pretty sure Daniel Theis and Serge Ibaka are going to fight at oh, some point. Oh, man, in this I would not take that back because I'm pretty sure I'd lose money. And then, you know, I think that, uh, you know, um, as good as Marcus Smart is, once you get Kyle Lowry and Van Vliet going, uh, Kemba Walker, as great as he is on offense and as hard as he tries on defense, Lowry and Van Vliet are both like, really physical guards and i think they can really bring it to them so uh i'm still i'm still taking toronto i think it's going to be a heavy series though that's going to go all the way to the end i gotta go with the celtics here from just judging by game one kyle lowry's ankle still doesn't look good yeah. i mean between van vliet and lowry they lowry went for 17 points in 35 minutes van vliet went for a 11 that's a good stat line if you're a guy coming in off the bench if you're like a danny green on like the lakers but if you're going to try to pro propel this team back to the nba finals you're going to need way more from those guys i mean P pascal had a similar game 13 points in thir 34 minutes those three guys need to step up play at the all-star to mvp level that we know that they're capable of and then i mean then you got a guy like og right who mm -hmm. Many people consider it to be like the difference maker. If he plays up to a certain level, this team can go as far as they want. 
Not exactly the game he wanted yesterday either. So from that starting five, pretty mediocre performance yesterday, and that's how the Celtics jumped out and never looked back. Yeah. All right, Benny, to the Western Conference we go, and it is the L.A. Lakers versus any combination of Houston and Oklahoma City, though I'm more inclined to think that Houston's going to advance, even though OKC's put up really good series. It's been neck and neck, but I think, you know, one game, Russ has... May not have had the output that he wanted in over the weekend against Oklahoma City, but I feel like as he gets nursed back into the lineup, that could be a different situation. What are you thinking and looking at for the Lakers in the second round? I mean, I think it's the tale of two series. I, I you know, because playing, I do think the Rockets are going to advance, but if for some reason the Thunder did advance, I like that matchup so much better for the Lakers than I do the Rockets. Uh, I think OKC could be handled by the Lakers in a lot of different ways. Um, I think they have no answers for a lot of different elements that LA brings, and that would be a bad, bad series for them. Houston, on the other hand, matches up quite differently. Their athleticism out in the wing, the way that um, they can move a ball around and kick it from one corner to the other corner so quickly – and the way the Lakers kind of play a little cloddy sometimes, you know, um, you're not going to be able to beat a Houston team by LeBron and Anthony Davis scoring 80 points and no one else doing anything. It's right. just not going to happen in that series. Uh, Westbrook showed me something that I loved in the last game, which was he took a couple long twos because he had no options. Yeah. And I saw him shake his own head at himself. He's like, no, no long twos, Russ, no long twos. He's obviously like down for the game plan and just didn't have his feet under him yet, you know, and you could see it. You could see Russ trying to get his bounce back. And for how long he missed, I think he looked all right. So I'm not going to go away from my Lakers pick, but uh, if if it is a Houston Lakers series, I think it's going to be long. And I think it could be a couple shots away from a really big upset. This is one of the biggest kind of bubble games in the things I've been talking about, where a team that was so great in the regular season is going to be affected by this bubble situation. And I don't know if anybody is more affected by it than the Lakers. So uh, as much as I'm sticking with the Lakers, if it winds up the Rockets, it's going to be a doozy. Oh, Benny, neither of these teams stand a chance in this series because this first-round matchup was very much like teams that don't play off-ball defense versus a team that doesn't play off-ball defense and against a team like the Lakers. You need to play that off-ball defense because they're so long. Also, like they're just a team that on any given night, a guy like Danny Green can get hot. Caruso can get hot. So... From top to bottom, I just don't think that the small ball lineup for the Rockets works. I don't think Mike D'Antoni trying to get past a bubble juggernaut, if you will, in the Lakers works. And then on the other side, I actually think OKC would have a better chance against the the Lakers. I think someone like the the togetherness of uh, Chris Paul and, and Billy Donovan working to kind of break down the Lakers' weaknesses, especially when... That guy, Dwight Howard, is in there would be a very interesting watch. So I think if it's Houston, not a chance that they're falling to the Lakers. I think that, you know, Thunder may take a game, but I think it's doubtful. But I think we're cruising straight to L.A., L.A., which is exactly why this entire bubble exists. The La La. That's what they want. (laughs) They want La La Land. And then our final matchup, a very solemn happy trails to Luka Doncic in this tournament. 
we had a, a, a great couple of games here where it was like, oh, man, could Luka actually do this? Then, you know, he goes down, you know, and then with KP being down. Yeah. Yesterday was just kind of like a really sad, if, if, if you're watching ceremonial basketball. Yeah. Yes. It was ceremonial yeah. yesterday. They were probably yeah, they were ready to... the blood out of the cow <laughs> yesterday, yeah. They were probably ready to get out of the bubble, but yeah. do either Utah or Denver have a chance to upset the Clippers in the second round? Nah. No. Not really. I wish I had a hotter take than that, but this is the one where I'm like, I don't care who gets through. Um, They're both great teams, and they're really fun to watch right now. But I could explain to you half a dozen holes on each where the Clippers are so heavily favored. The thing I'm really loving about the Clippers right now and why by the end of this series, I may have to rebuke my Lakers take (laughs) – is I love how deep they are. I yeah. really do. And I like, you know, you think when you look at the Clippers and you see this size and you look at the wings, but then I'm looking the way like Shamit looks. Yeah. He looks decisive. He looks confident in his decisions. He's hitting shots. He was 11 of 24 from deep in that last series. You have guys like Reggie Jackson, who, you know, for all of his problems, is a borderline all-star talent, you know, even though he's never going to live up to that coming in as like your eighth or ninth scoring option off the bench and who can really score and really give you problems in a lot of different ways. All these guys coming off the bench, I think uh, the Jazz may have had an outside chance if Bogdanovich was there and they had that extra threat. But to me, this is a, uh, yeah, this is a a closed door series. Clippers will advance. I don't see more than five games, maybe six. Yeah. I let off this segment talking about, you know, the best player and the best team or the the best player wins the series 90% of the time. I think the Clippers have the best two players in the series when Paul George is on. And it seems from the latter half of Dallas series that he has found that groove in the bubble. So I like the Clippers here. Kawhi, I don't think that. Yes, give me your Donovan Mitchells, give me your Jokic, but... I don't really think that that's going to do much there. So Clippers, Lakers, Bucks, Boston, love that for a conference final. All right, before we get out of here, uh, the world's lost some great leaders, great people this past week. We just want to take a moment to acknowledge the loss of Chadwick Boseman, actor 43. Chadwick Boseman was a guy who I thought was prepared to enter his Robert Redford portion of the career or like you, you go from those like action superhero movies to like the more right. emotional roles, sexy leading man, exactly, drama, exactly. sure. And I mean, like Redford had uh, Butch Cassidy, like like Redford had The Natural stuff like that. Nobody, I think, in modern cinema was doing more to kind of impersonate people. I mean, like you watch Get On Up, Chadwick Boseman is James Brown. You watched uh, Jackie, right. Ro- uh, you watch Forty Two. He is. Jackie Robinson. So, and then he just took it to a whole other level with Black Panther. The new Spike Lee movie he did was good. So, way too soon. I feel like we had a whole lot more left from him. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's it's such a bummer. And and there's some stuff that I didn't really. I really like. You know, the sad thing is he he obviously grinded. There's so much that's sad about this, but you know, starting in 2004 is when, you know, Chadwick Boseman started getting some parts and they were these like, you know, single one-off parts in Law and Order, Third Watch, CSI, ER, Cold Case, yeah. and then a bunch of, a couple series that didn't take. 
And then, you know, he lands 1942 and land, you know, nails that Jackie Robinson character and then plays Vontae Mack in Draft Day, which is a movie that I love, by the way. And he he was like the perfect Vontae Mack. He was basically playing himself. It was like nice Southern guy, you know. And then right from there, it was like he was just shot up, you know. And he did uh, all these movies, I think, between Black Panther and the two last Avengers movies. Chadwick Boseman was now a star in three of the highest grossing films of all time, which is just fucking cool. Um, So, yeah, I mean, people have said it so many times. We couldn't say it better. The fact that uh, he's gone too soon and had so much left to give as an artist. One thing that really stands out to me is, you know, he was obviously sick for a long time and dealing with almost, you know, the most critical thing that a person and their family could be dealing with in their life and kept working and didn't tell the outside world what he was dealing with and then passed away what we deem suddenly. Um, And I do think for someone the size of Chadwick Boseman at the, the age he died and the situation that I think you do yourself and the longevity of the way your career looks and stuff, a lot of favors by playing it the way he played it. Because we're not remembering Chadwick Boseman of the last two years sick and fighting cancer because that wasn't our reality. We're remembering fucking Black Panther and Black Panther just went out. And I think that's the way to do it, man. I really, I respected the way he did it. And I think it's such a high character move. Uh, And I don't know if I was put in the same position, I might do the same thing. Yeah. Finally today, uh, for me, just RIP, the legend, the big man from Georgetown, John Thompson and Benny. This this is so crazy to me because I met him a couple of times um, with when when Marquette would play at Georgetown, even in the new Big East. Big John was there at every single game. I know you've talked on this pod about, you know, the people that you've like come in contact with and just been like, Hey, how's it going? That was me with big John. He was like, how's it going young fella? I'm just like, good. And just kept it moving because he was so fucking scary. I mean, yeah, like, he's even, just he's bigger than life. Exactly. Right? Even as an, an older gentleman, he would stand in the tunnel and he was just a giant of the sport in stature in size and what he did Mike Wilbon was on the Tony Kornheiser podcast sharing a bunch of uh, stories about how when his dad died, he sent flowers to the funeral and they were the biggest bouquet there. Really took a caring. Now, he was a tough son of a bitch. He, if if, if you were in in the media, uh, he would not call you back uh, in like normal hours. Uh, He was a noted insomniac. He would call writers uh, for the interview at two, three in the morning. Kind of like, you know, yeah awesome guy um, kind of how the, that's usually when you get text answers for me right? yeah exactly exactly <laughs> you are uh <laughs> you are the john thompson of drummers over here no but it was just i would take that yeah. <laughs> i would take that <laughs> but what what he did in the community um reclaiming georgetown and really as a super educated Black male leading a all-white university at the time that he did, yeah. making Georgetown cool. Allen Iverson attributed him with saving his life. 
just you can't say enough good things about what he meant for not just sports, but for the entire social structure of this country. Yeah, someone made a great point earlier, which was if you had told me in the late 80s, early 90s, when I, by virtue, was a giant Georgetown fan, by the way. Remember, college basketball isn't a thing around here. Yeah. You know, unless you happen to grow up in like Piscataway or something. You don't care about Rutgers as a kid. It was never good. Um, And my brother and my dad were massive Knicks fans. And I kind of turned into a Georgetown fan because of the Patrick Ewing thing. They were in the Big East. Uh, I could watch them play all the time. And so so I'm, I just like Georgetown. And if you told me in the 80s and early 90s, I forget who made this point, maybe Zach Lowe, but if you were like, oh, Georgetown's an HBC, I would have believed it because I had no idea what the university was about. I just consistently saw a black basketball team basically, yeah. you know, and, and if you told me they were an HBC, then I would have believed you, which I think is a real testament to the program he was running. And then not to mention, I mean, in subsequent classes, you had Patrick Ewing going to Alonzo Mourning, going to Dikembe Mutombo, going to Allen Iverson, you know, who was one of the great college experiments ever. And John Thompson may have been the only one who could have guided him through a college experience and got him out the other end. So, I mean, you know, the stories go back. You'll hear tons of them for a week, but I don't think you're going to hear a, a peep of anything but respect and class out of what comes out of the next week in stories with John Thompson. A true legend of the game. Well, that'll do it for us over here. You can email us at the tune-up podcast with two P's in there at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the tune-up HQ. You can follow Benny on Twitter at Benny Horowitz1. Hey, and if you want to do it on Instagram, it's just first name, last name, Benny Horowitz. You know the deal. I'm at Denny underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else? You know what? This week, as much as any week, everybody love everybody. Exactly. We need it. Exactly. Let's Benny, be righteous people. Let's be righteous. Live your lives. You Benny, know? great stuff this week. Go put the kids to bed. And everybody else, you've been listening to the tune-up. Thank you so much for checking out the tune-up this week. Uh, If you want to support this podcast, support the people that support us, our friends over at Open Your Ears Records, and their new band, Guardrail. They're Chicago's finest, and they're gearing up to release their new EP, Yikes, on September 25th. They've got a little bit of everything. They've got catchy melodies and witty hooks. Guardrail brings their own style of diet punk to your stereo. You know, they're not quite bad religion, but they're not some 41 either. Here's a clip of their new single, Till We're Dead. I've been listening to that one driving up and down the parkway this summer, going back and forth to the beach. If you like what you heard, you can head on over to oyerex.com. That's O-Y-E-R-E-C-S dot com. Guardrail, yikes, September 25th. Write that down on your calendars, ladies and gentlemen, courtesy of the good folks at Open Your Ears Records. Pre-order today.